Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg. This podcast is supported by the Swedish Research Council. In today's episode, we have Dalia Abdelhedi, Associate Professor in Sociology at Lund University. She is joining us in a conversation on diasporas. We will discuss how events back home, whether natural disasters or political crises, affect diaspora communities and their engagement with the homeland. So in talking about the floods and the earthquake in Libya and Morocco, I wouldn't say like this was the first time like either groups were activated in the diaspora sense, but it definitely was in a critical event that kind of reignited perhaps the diaspora attachments. We're also joined by Hamsa Oheishi, a board member of the Moroccan Association in Malmö, Sweden, and a PhD student in computer science at Malmö University. Hamsa will talk about how they work with community support at the Moroccan Association in Malmö and the recent emergency response efforts after the devastating earthquake in Morocco. When the earthquake happened, I was actually in Morocco. I was in touch with the association here, and they told me to reach out with the public services there, basically. And whenever we have uh, a mission that is connected to Morocco, we usually go through the embassy or the consulate. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Our first guest today is Dalia Abdelhadi, who has done extensive research on diasporas, from her early work on the Lebanese diaspora in New York, Montreal and Paris, to her recent co-editing of the Ruthledge Handbook of Middle East Diasporas. Her insights shed light on the ever-evolving nature of diasporic communities and how community members navigate the relationship with the homelands over time exploring the dynamic interplay between diasporas and various types of crises, be it natural disasters, political conflicts or uprisings. Dahlia offers a multifaceted perspective of diaspora communities, as some aim to preserve cultural and ethnic identities, while others aspire to challenge traditional norms and create new ways of engagement. The conversation concludes with a thoughtful discussion on recent global crises, such as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and natural disasters in North Africa, highlighting how people from diverse backgrounds are moved to engage, not just as co-ethnics, but as concerned global citizens. Dalia, I want to thank you for joining us today to, to be here with Ghadir and I to talk about how events back home, whether we're talking about natural disasters or we're talking about political events, affect diasporas and how they then uh, subsequently would engage in, in these events and sometimes sending aid or engaging otherwise. So I know you've done a lot of work on diasporas and I'd like the listeners just to hear a little bit about the work you've done and what you found. So first of all, thank you both for inviting me in general and also for inviting me to talk about a topic that is so dear to me and and yeah, personal in so many ways, but also something that I've been working on for so many years. Yes, I started working on diasporas when I was still a PhD student. My PhD project that also eventually turned into a book was on the Lebanese diaspora in New York, Montreal and Paris. And I kind of like I've I've 
followed members of the Lebanese diaspora for about a decade and wrote about different things that they've experienced as like things were changing in Lebanon, but also the way their own relationship with their homeland changed uh, the longer or over time based on how long they've been gone. And I have recently co-edited the Rutledge Handbook of Middle East Diasporas, which gave me an opportunity to also kind of like gain a more general overview of the research that current scholars are writing about and doing as far as diasporas of the Middle East are concerned. So this is very briefly the work I have been doing. Great. You mentioned uh, sort of Lebanon, of course, that's yet another place. We didn't mention it when we were talking about sort of the sets of crises, but it's another place which has really experienced, you know, what some people call the triple crisis between the port explosion and the financial crisis also has had its fair share of, of just trauma, essentially, that has taken place. When you look at how things change over time for individuals, can you tell us a little bit about the, the ways in which the relationship to home changes over time? And then give us a sense of if that means that it changes with regards to the kinds of either existing conflict that we're seeing in, in the Palestinian-Israeli case or with regards to the sets of earthquakes or floods that we saw in, in Morocco and Libya. Does that also change over time? So most immigrants, in the, they maintain some level of relationship with the places where they come from, right? I mean, most of them have family or friends or feel uh, nostalgic towards the places where they grew up. So it, it's not it's not surprising, right? And academically speaking, now people have been emphasizing and have understood the transnational connections that people have to their homeland, right? They're in one place, they belong to it, right? They've migrated and they want to build a life, but they also like they'll continue to have a relationship with the homeland. But was diasporas in specific, right, either in the theoretical framework or as something that we use really in everyday language these days? I mean, diasporas are defined by their relationship with their homeland. If we take like the classical example of the Jewish diaspora, it was a group of people who always had this longing to a homeland and they just they could not return. Now that definition has, has been updated and changed and that applies to various groups that are not necessarily groups that cannot return to a homeland. But groups could be like, you know, self-exile or just even just regular migrants, like everyday migrants, uh, can still be understood as diasporas. And for me, the, the key aspect is that like in the life of a migrant, right, they connect to the places where they migrate to, right? They want to build a life, they want to work, start families, be part of their communities day to day. And then they have this continuing relationship with the places they come from for whatever reason that may be. And of course, it, it varies from one person to another, right? So we can't like say that like it, it, it's strong for everybody who you know migrated recently or anything like that. But then what, what's interesting also is that migrants maintain the connection or a sense of community with other people from the same country of origin around the world. So when I studied the Lebanese, for example, what fascinated me was that you can look at a Lebanese family that like there are members somewhere in South America, North America, Europe, even China, right? That one family that spread all over the world and that they maintain connections and interactions sometimes on a daily basis. So that definitely changes their understanding of who they are and their place in the world. And that what I think is, is fascinating and kind of like unique about diasporas. Is it also fair to say that it changes their relations with others within the same country? In other words, that if I'm Lebanese and I'm near other Lebanese, that I have a connection with them and it's a shared sense of 
and our obligations or how we should engage with each other. Um, because you, of course, see lots of diaspora com communities, right? That the Lebanese are going back in time, the Italians or the Germans, I mean, that they stick together and stay together. Is that a romanticized version of the world or, or does that really exist? I mean, first of all, right, so, so yeah, so people who do not migrate at all, right, they continue to be affected by the process of migration. And this is something that migration scholars have been paying more attention to these days, that migration is not just about the immigrant, the migrant who moves, but it's also the people they leave behind. Again, take Lebanon as an example. I mean, the, the country survived for decades, right, for many years during the Civil War and after the Civil War. And we can think even like the more recent, you know, triple crises that you mentioned, the role of like the Lebanese people around the world is very important here in order to understand how people are surviving day to day and how like the entire country did not, I mean, one people can argue that it, it, it's already collapsed, right? But it still doesn't collapse, right? It's still, there's still some sense of coherence and level of stability as minimum that can be. And the diasporas are very important here. So yeah, so first the people who don't move are still affected by diasporas to a large extent. And as you said, when people move, yes, the relationship with the places where they come from change in unexpected ways. So people, of course, leave because they have a reason to leave, right? I mean, it could be economic reasons, it could be like a sense of adventure, it could be whatever reason that they have to leave. But it takes a level of detachment, right, for a person to make a decision, I don't want to live in this country anymore, I'm going to leave my family, places where I grew up, my friends and everybody. So you have to detach to a certain extent. Then you go to a new place, and then that sense of detachment can like hits you in the face. That like it, it, you know, something happens. It's like you realize that you actually you're more attached than you thought you were, and that's why I mean, many people go out and seek you know, co-ethnics. Even like sometimes people I talk to, I mean, they they would say like they're friends with people. In, in the diaspora, but these people, they would never be their friends had they stayed in Lebanon, for example, right? Because there is something about, you know, coming from a similar place or, or appreciating the same food or just like laughing at the same jokes. It definitely makes people feel more connected than, than otherwise. When we're thinking about how diasporas might be responding then to crises that occur back home, how much should we understand these responses as being kind of dyadic between individuals who are outside and family members and others who are inside? And how much are they driven by that community which evolves, the one that is around diaspora, whether it's Lebanese or Moroccan or, or others? Yeah, I have a very specific theoretical understanding of what diaspora is. So I'll start that by saying that diasporas are not entities that are just out there. Being a migrant does not make one immediately a member of a diaspora, but diasporas formed in particular circumstances, right, in, in particular contexts. One important factor in this process of formation of a diaspora actually is critical events in the homeland. So we can see that, for example, like, I mean, talk about Coptic Egyptians who may not necessarily identify, historically speaking, as members of a diaspora. They didn't have a, a strong sense of being Coptic Egyptians. But we see that in the 70s, when like there were critical events happening to Copts in Egypt, that the political mobilization that they had in, well, in places like France or Northern, North America, that allowed them to form a diaspora. So like, I mean, create a sense of community that's also politically active, that's also interested in affecting things in the homeland. So we can see this with various groups. So groups that have been more or less not 
very active politically or socially. Like think of Tunisians, for example, who are usually like small numbers in various places. But when the uprisings happened in Tunisia, people outside felt it was a critical moment for them that activated something, their interest in what was happening in, in Tunisia. So critical events are very important in the formation of diasporas. Some would argue that actually without these critical events, you would not necessarily have diasporas as such. So in talking about the floods and the earthquake in Libya and Morocco, I wouldn't say like this was the first time like either groups were activated in the diaspora stance, but it definitely was in a critical event that kind of reignited perhaps the diasporic attachments. So that's really interesting. And I guess what it makes me think about is the potential differences between different types of events back home. If we think about something like the earthquakes or the floods, I mean, there's a bit of politicization over this, but, but they're a very different event than, say, for example, civil war in Syria, or even if we're thinking about what takes place in Lebanon and the way in which people see that as internally divisive, right? So how does that affect the relationship among members of the diaspora? How does that even, given the way that you've defined the diaspora, which I find really fascinating, how does that shape the formation of, of diaspora? Well, unfortunately, divisions in the homeland get reflected among members of diaspora as well, right? So if, you know, there are various functions in Syria, these same groupings are also present in diaspora as well. So you can find like very similar divisions. But you can also find some groups who try to overcome these divisions. The example of the Lebanese, the case I know the most about, there were people who would emphasize that they left Lebanon for a reason, like sectarian strife was kind of like a big reason for why people left. And if they've left because of sectarian strife, they definitely did not have no interest in recreating that kind of division in the diaspora. And they longed for creating the kind of community that they always wanted. So you can find like the, you know, the utopian vision, maybe perhaps more actualized in the diaspora, but you can also find similar divisions and conflicts replicating themselves in the diaspora as well. In that sense, perhaps I can emphasize that when I talked about how critical events are important for the formation of diasporas, I mean, this is both in the negative and the positive sense. So you can have crises, of course, they're very important. I mean, I mentioned historically the Coptic case. That's a negative event that triggered this diasporic consciousness and awareness. But positive events also, and I like to think of like the uprisings as being, you know, one of these like positive events where people were proud to attach really to the homeland again. It was a definitely more of a, a positive euphoric almost experience of like being with co-ethnics and co-nationals when you're unable to go back for whatever reason. And that's a great example because the other thing that had struck me about your earlier comment was that we can think about diasporas, and we've talked about them as Lebanese or Moroccans or Palestinians, et cetera, but we can also think about cross-cutting the ethnic experience of it, right? And of course, you're often thinking of Arabs, but we can also think of religious or sectarian or other sets of, of divisions. So how do we think about the fact that diasporas, like many identities, are, are cross-cutting and, and multiple, right? So that we have people who may identify as Arab very broadly, as Tunisian very specifically. At times, I mean, the uprisings, there's not an example of this, but there are times when these things 
a bit come into to tension with each other, where the events on the ground really pull at being Arab versus being you know, Tunisian, or, or, or right now what we're thinking about. You could make an argument with regards to the Palestinian-Israeli case that being of different nationalities may put you in a different juxtaposition to the, to the case. How do we understand that? And how do we understand how diasporas form and people form their relationship with diasporas, particularly when they might have tensions between them? Well, I mean, diaspora is just another form of identity, right? So we, I mean, already accept that identities are multiple and can be contradictory. So diasporic identities are very similar way. There can be multiple and can also be very contradictory. Depending on what the trigger is, one may feel part of a Tunisian diaspora or a Moroccan diaspora, but then something else may happen and they become members of Arab diaspora where they have not necessarily identified as Arabs before. But also one of the things that I write about in my book, The Lebanese Diaspora, is that, yes, I mean, people have the national attachment, the ethnic attachment, sometimes like the attachment to you know, particular neighborhoods, particular villages and towns that they come from. Families, I already mentioned that example. But we also see people moving beyond all of these like traditional understandings and, and, and formations of identity to something that's a little less traditional. So by that, I mean, like I mentioned the example of people saying, well, we left because of sectarian trife. We don't want to replicate that on the diaspora. For them, becomes an important identifying factor for them that they seek affinities and connections with people who believe in, have similar beliefs regardless of where they come from. So people who, for example, leave because of issues of inequality, right, economic or political or religious, whatever, inequality, they are outside of their homeland and then they realize, well, th these are the issues that really matter to them and people can share the same opinions and interest in doing something about them without coming from the same country. So they find themselves mobilized and part of communities Sometimes with other immigrants, but sometimes also with like, you know, people who share political ideals in general. So we can also talk about these as like, you know, diasporas in a in a more loose way, but diasporas can be formed around all kinds of causes and identities and affiliations. And so when we think about how diasporas are affected by the events that are taking place, right, events back home, how should we think about the nature of their engagement or the extent to which that may differ depending on either the type of event that we're talking about or the type of diaspora that's been formed? Okay, I guess to answer that question, I, I need to illustrate a little bit with an example. So one chapter in that Rutledge Handbook of Middle East Diasporas about the Tunisian diaspora in France and Italy. Tunisians in France were historically like a little bit more organized politically in terms of organizations than the one in Italy. But okay, so yeah, uprisings happen in, in Tunisia. Members of diaspora become very interested in what's happening in the homeland and they want to have an impact, right? They want to they be part of the process of change. A few of them go back, you know, run for office, right? Participate politically, you know, all of that. But then they also, they got disillusioned fairly quickly, like many other politicians in Tunisia, regardless of whether they're migrants or not. And in their case, right, I mean, they have the option of just like going back to either France or Italy and continuing with the political engagement and struggle there. But it no longer became so much focused on Tunisia. They realized that their political role or the, the changes that they want to see in the world, again, can happen anywhere and in, in different ways and not just by specifically affecting what's happening in Tunisia. 
another chapter about Palestinians in Denmark who, well, different contexts, of course, and I mean, and, and different critical events. But the chapter specifically gives an example of a group of second generation, right? So people who were born and raised in Denmark and having the opportunity to go back and participate in like, you know, these tour, diaspora tours to go to Palestinian villages and see things on the ground. And of course, there they kind of like perhaps somewhat hit with the realization that they're not the same kind of Palestinian as the Palestinians who are like still there and, you know, experience occupation in, in a very specific way. But they go back to Denmark and their sense of their Danishness and what they want to do in Denmark for their own Palestinian communities, for the neighborhoods, for like other marginalized immigrants, it becomes strong, it becomes an important source of their identity of who they are. So diaspora, it can trigger these things, but it also, I guess my point is that it can also change the relationship that people have with the countries where they live in important ways. And, and these are, in my opinion, I would say, there are positive changes, right? I mean, people wanting to be a positive factor in social change, not just in the homeland, but in the spaces they occupy day to day. I like that example, and I and I like sort of the emphasis on and the ways in which these can be positive. Partly because my own experience, especially you know watching Arab diasporas after after nine eleven in the U.S., was that you can also see times when they they, they seem to become quite negative, right? Or I mean, you know, at, at times when the people around suddenly, maybe it's not so sudden, but experience and express very much that you're an outsider, you're an other. So how do we understand the, the ways in which existing crises or events may also tear at the relationship between diasporas and others within the country? Mm, that's a hard question. I think we can think of this process of otherness as an important factor in the formation of diasporas. I think if if people will fully assimilate, not that's a word I would like to use, but like if you know we can imagine a process of full assimilation, then people would have no reason to be part of a diaspora. So those who are attracted to a diasporic community of sorts, an incomplete or kind of like a, a contentious relationship with the countries they live in. And that what draws them to, you know, diaspora communities. So I think marginalization, otherness in general is an important factor in the formation of diasporas. I hope that answers your question. No, it very much does. Thank you. So when we think about, again, this um, pull towards engagement, and you mentioned this in terms of the uh, Tunisians who went back, and of course, we also saw Egyptians who went back to Egypt, Libyans went back to Libya, and even probably percentage-wise greater numbers after the fall of Gaddafi. We get this one reaction can be, I'm going to return and do something, right? Then, of course, for many people, return isn't really an option either because they don't want to be involved in politically in, in these ways or involved in this, this directly. So we see a lot of other ways of trying to kind of mobilize as a community, send support if we're talking about natural disasters back home and, and really try to engage in those ways. Can you tell me a little bit about those efforts? When the diaspora comes together to try to engage back home, does it reinforce diaspora and the meaning of diaspora on the one hand? There was a discussion about how sometimes people don't necessarily know exactly what needs to get that sent back, and then you can send too much back, and which in my mind also brings up the question of, does it demonstrate how far away you are, right? If suddenly you find that how you responded wasn't necessarily what was needed, does it make you feel more distant from you know, your community? Okay, now I don't, I'm not only not there, right? But I'm not there and 
there's this gap between my understanding and the reality. How does this all affect diaspora? There are a few things I want to say here. The definition of diaspora, the traditional, at least, definition of diaspora, it's all about the return, right? It's all about the desire to return to a homeland. So in some ways, we can think of like people who actually return, right? I mean, that this is kind of like the, the end stage of, of a diaspora, right? The diaspora will cease to exist once people actually return, and, and, and that there's an argument there. But then also I mentioned a couple of examples already about like how diasporas actually become activated once people return because they realize, well, no, this is not what I want. And they, they leave again. And sometimes, yes, there are moments and events where people feel alienated more so than before from their homeland as well. This is perhaps somewhat of a personal example, but like, you know, I'm from Egypt and when the Egyptian uprisings were taking place, of course, I was very excited. I participated in all kinds of like protest solidarity events that in the States, I was in the States at the time. And it was, was a moment to like really be hopeful about things changing in Egypt. But then I quickly realized that those who were allowed to speak and, and given center stage were mostly men. And when I tried to say something about it, I was told like, no, not now, right? We discuss this later, but now we have a common goal. And I was like, well, then this is not my struggle. This is not what I want. And I, and I was reminded again of kind of like, okay, I left for a reason, right? And that was kind of like, it was a sad realization, but it made me also think, well, like, this is not my revolution. And indeed it wasn't. I wasn't, you know, I was gone from Egypt for a good decade by the time the revolution was happening. So yes, it was not mine. It was something that I could relate to, something that made me happy for at a particular time, but it was not necessarily my own personal political struggle, like, you know, most people who were, you know, participating in it. It, it can it can have that effect on you as well. Yeah, and that's interesting because that's an effect. Like you said, it's it's one that's your engagement with others in the diaspora, right? Which triggers and rem and reminds you of some of the ways in which what's what's expected or some of the ways in which how people relate to each other don't sit well with how you want to live. That's very key. Which also brings up the, the extent to which you, I don't know if you would dichotomize this way, so feel free to push back because on the one hand, I'm hearing about diasporic communities, which are trying to create a different non-sectarian when, you know, Lebanese tend to sort of have a lot of politics revolving around sectarianism, gender neutral in places which tend to be very patriarchal coming from. So, so that actually try to say, okay, I think you used the word utopian, set up a vision and a way of engaging that is very different, right? There's others which are essentially trying to recreate home away. You hear this a lot in the States where people want to maintain close connections with the diaspora because there's a whole notion of making sure that what you're doing is creating a bubble of home where you've now moved to. Those strike me as two very different ways to think about what engaging with others who are from the place where you're from and maybe even longing to go back but in one case to go back to a new and improved country and the other one to go back to the place that they that they left but they seem strikingly different in in their essence so do we see those and how do they engage or interact with each other sort of how do we think about that i guess in my head i i make the distinction between ethnic or national community, right? So we can talk about the Lebanese in, well, New York or Palestinians in Denmark, right? I mean, these are like, you know, nationally defined communities that happen to be made up of immigrants. So that's one thing. But diasporas are something else. If it's just one of the same, then we don't really need to use the term diaspora at all. 
but many people do anyway, right? I mean, people use diaspora as a synonym to immigrant communities, but I don't. So for me, diaspora has to offer something new and different. And for me, that new and different is the desire to move beyond the traditional, the traditional understanding of identity, right? As a you know, an ethnic national identity, the traditional setup in society, just like, I mean, you know, try to kind of like come up with something new and different. And that sometimes leads to just like getting rid of the ethnic completely or the national completely. And sometimes it doesn't, um, it depends. So, I mean, I would say, if we look back at the uprisings, I think it definitely, perhaps the fact that it can happen in multiple countries at the same time, but I think it also, it did something to like, I mean, an Arab diaspora that perhaps was not as strong before. Arab communities abroad, Arab diasporas, ebbs and flows, it goes up and down that sense of Arabness and, and mobilization around the word Arab. And I would say like in more recent years, I think this awareness around that sense of Arabness has been stronger. And then after 9-11, as you mentioned, but even like after 9-11, I think there were, there were times when people talk about a backlash against what well, the backlash, right? So like 9-11 creating also a sense of, of community and, you know, rallying around other identity. I'm struck by, on the one hand, when we talked about diasporas, the fact that it seems like diaspora is motivated or defined around the notion of return. And then you had just said that there was a way in which it was also motivated in some ways around an idea of change. So not just return to what was, right? Because I was saying that I saw two senses of diaspora, one which was people who want to and you nicely sort of separate ethnic communities versus diaspora, but people who even if they want to return, but they also in the meantime want to maintain and preserve what was back home and, and essentially transfer it into their new place. If you're in the U.S., you hear people who will talk about making sure that they stay with their community because they know how to raise the children right, they know how to sort of live right, and it's a preservational perspective versus one which is about it's sectarian back home, but we want to be anti-sectarian. It's it's hierarchical and patriarchal back home, but we want to be gender neutral. So so a notion of creating a community that is different, right? Yes, I still long for home, and when I go home, I want it to be different because the reason I left was because it wasn't different, right? So I see those as two quite different ways of thinking about community. So I actually wrote an article about the myth of return. And about how, well, we can understand this myth of return as, well, it's something that brings members of diaspora together. And it's something that people may want to actually like kind of like see happening, right? The ultimate return to a homeland. But when I wrote about it, I actually emphasized the kind of like the, the myth part of it. That even when, when people can go back, most people actually don't go back. But they, they want to live with this kind of like idea that maybe one day in the future, or like some people would want to be buried right in the homeland. So there's no actual interest in return, return, but like you still want to maintain some kind of relationship because that's an important part of your identity, perhaps. You mentioned the word that some groups can be interested in maintaining well, ethnic ties and communities to preserve a culture, a way of life, or a certain way of doing things. Can, okay, you can think of this for people who are interested in preservation. But I like to think of diaspora as, as aspiration. Again, diasporas are not entities that already exist, right? But something that happens and gets created in response to something. 
So if they're responding to something, then that response usually includes an interest in affecting the process. So Copts in North America, they it wasn't that they just got together because they felt sorry for themselves, even though they were North American, they're not in Egypt, but they're interested in affecting things in Egypt. And that led to like a rise in like of diasporic consciousness at the time. And we can think of this for other groups as well. And that that's very different from again from ethnic communities who just like want to get together with people who speak the same language and eat the same food and raise the kids the same way. Final question I'm going to ask you about in terms of thinking about the ways in which people engage, either if we're talking about the earthquakes and floods in terms of trying to send things home, or if we're now, um, at the time we're taping this, of course, is the Israeli-Gazan crisis, and you see a lot of people kind of mobilized in the streets and, you know, trying to be very active in, in response to the crisis. Should we understand that as co-ethnic mobilization and then apart from the notion of diaspora as longing in a sense of belonging and, and even mythical, if you will, but sense of return? Or is there a way in which this is, that this engagement is particularly strong because there's something about it that is about maintaining that connection and demonstrating a real intent of being there? So you mentioned a couple of examples that are somewhat difficult to just like keep only within the diasporic concept. So we mentioned like Israel, Gaza and earthquakes and floods in North Africa. And both of those examples were moments where people were mobilized in general, regardless of where they come from. So like now we're seeing kind of like the large scale mobilization that's happening all over the world. Like I, I don't want to call it pro-Palestinian, but just like, but anti-genocide, right? So this has nothing to do with where people come from. It's just like, it's something about ideals and moral values. And the same thing, you know, was like what happened in North Africa, earthquake in, in Syria, Turkey, not so long before that, was, yes, of course, people who come from these regions have a completely different attachment to what's happening, of course, and nobody can, can even, you know, begin to understand that kind of attachment. But everybody else also is feeling something about it because the scale of suffering is so large that yeah, we all have to think about it and all have to engage with it. That's an excellent point. Thank you for talking to us today. Is there anything else that we didn't get to touch on that you want to make sure that you've had a chance to explain to us? No, thank you. If you if you have any other questions, I'll be happy to answer them. I mean, this was yeah definitely a, a nice conversation to have. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Now we'll hear from Hamsa Oheshi from the Moroccan Association in Malmö and how they work to support Moroccan community building in Malmö, Sweden, but also how the association mobilized to help on the ground in Morocco after the devastating earthquake on the 8th of September 2023. How do you know what a community thousands of miles away truly needs? Hamsa gives us valuable insights on establishing effective communication channels, collaborating with community leaders, and understanding the unique challenges of rural areas. Hi, Hamza. Thank you for coming to the podcast. So first, would you please introduce yourself to our audience? Thank you for having me, Radir. My name is Hamza, and I'm a board member at the Moroccan Association in Malmo. And I'm also a PhD student at Malmo University. 
in computer science. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. So would you please tell us more about the Moroccan Association in Mamo? When did you start and what activities do you do? The association itself, it started a long time ago, more than 15 years. And it had, it went through different boards. So it had a lot of missions and a lot of uh, visions. And recently, the last uh, three years, almost all board members were changed. And uh, we are focusing now more on uh, social impact, specifically for the Moroccan community. So we organize activities in special occasions like religious uh, holidays and uh, national occasions. And also we, we look into the needs of the Moroccan community and also the interests of non-Moroccans in Moroccan culture. And we organize Arabic classes for kids and some social activities like sports, football, and, uh, and other stuff. Great. So how do you organize those activities? Are the individuals in the association tied together by other networks, maybe work or families or social media? Yeah, so there are different means how we get in touch with our members. Mostly it's uh, word by mouth. So people know each other and they spread the word. When we have new members, we use mostly SMS to spread uh, if there are new events or activities. We use social media because you have to use it, but we don't get a lot of interaction out of it. Yeah, and mostly people bring each other. And when we meet new people, we invite them to, to join us. Can you tell us more about how you organized your emergency response effort to support the victims of the earthquake in Morocco? When the earthquake happened, I was actually in Morocco. I was in touch with the association here, and they told me to reach out with the public services there, basically. And whenever we have uh, a mission that is connected to Morocco, we usually go through the embassy or the consulate. And uh, we are grateful for them here in Sweden because they are usually very helpful in many cases. So in this case, in the emergency, it helped a lot to consult them because we received a lot of help from different parts, not only in the Moroccan Association in Malmo, but in other countries and also even in, uh, in Morocco. Even that help became a problem at the end because it was too much and it needed management. So it, it was really good to consult with the, the authorities for them to be able to manage at least the roads because there was too much traffic and there were basically no ways close to the most affected areas or helicopters were needed to reach the place. And a lot of unneeded help was going there. Like people, maybe they need more medical help rather than a lot of clothes or food. There were videos where it shows that it was basically thrown or wasted or... Yeah, so consulting the authorities in Morocco, the consulate or the embassy here in order to know what, what were the needs. And also we collected clothes here and we realized it's not a good idea to send clothes from here to... So what did you manage to collect here in Sweden and how, how did you mobilize the community to communicate what is needed and what's not needed? So a number of... The board members and association members, they made this video call 
where they call for help and they explain the situation and uh, they focused on the help through donations, money donations. That happened last week. So it's going slowly. Yeah, that's the main thing that we are focusing on now after trying different things. So being an organization based in Sweden and you're usually doing activities for the Moroccan community in Mamo or in Sweden in general. So how did you know the needs of the community back home? So you mentioned a little bit that you, because you were there, you were communicating with different organizations or the authorities in Morocco. So could you elaborate more on that? How did you coordinate? Did you know the community leaders or the organizations before? How did you reach out to make sure there is coordination between the organization here in Mamo and people back home? Yeah, so when, when such thing happen, you basically feel that you are rotating in, in the same place. You are running and screaming and having your phone all the time on you. But uh, th there wasn't much coordination on the first, on the very first days. So it's mostly asking what's going on. You, tr you are trying to reach the places that are affected, but it's impossible because everybody went there. I was in touch with two associations there because I was previously a member or a benefitor from the associations. And they, they had knowledge about the communities there because the earthquake happened in rural areas where the place was already in need of help without an earthquake. So associations already knew what are the needs of such places before the earthquake. So they, they knew how to reach the place. They knew who, who are the people who are living there, how are they living. Yeah, so their main uh, concern was uh, about medical help because you need to save the people. And once you save them, there is no hospital nearby. And the places are very distributed or ubiquitous. So it's not one area. It's very, very small villages that are far from each other, but in the same region. They were all affected. So bringing one hospital or bringing one medical facility will not solve the problem. It will need at least one ambulance going to at least every small village. So that's what was communicated from Morocco to here. And that's why we focused on um, making donations for the aim of actually buying an ambulance that would have, you know, a small hospital in it that could be a mobile hospital, we can say. And in that, it could be used as a vehicle to, to send more help from here if we need to send something else. That's perfect. Thank you for sharing this with us. And that's a very impressive work, of course. Our hearts are with the victims of the earthquake. And I wish you best of luck in your efforts to support them. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Alia. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the episode. And don't forget to like, share and subscribe if you did.